right, we're going to go ahead and get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this time together this morning. We give you thanks for the way that you come to us in the sacraments, uh, in baptism, in Eucharist, and in all the other sacramental aspects of our life together as your people. Bless us this morning as we explore these mysteries together. Give us wisdom and teach us from your scriptures uh, and by your spirit. We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. We are on week eight, if you can believe it, of our Mapping the Christian Faith Fall Formation series. And this week, we get to talk about the topic of sacraments. So we've been talking about scripture and prayer as central to the Christian life of faith, means that God gives us for our spiritual growth and our health. Today, we're talking about how we encounter God together through the ministries of the church, especially the ritual acts that Christ instituted for our relationship with him, which is a kind of simple, quick definition of sacrament. So without further ado, we're a little bit low on time this morning. I want to jump right into talking about sacraments, beginning with a definition. What is a sacrament. There are all sorts of different ways of defining a sacrament throughout the Christian tradition, but I'll offer a few this morning for your consideration. First, a sacrament is a special event or activity of divine disclosure, ordained and brought about by God, and a real and effective means for encountering God that involves a material symbol or sign. I know that's a mouthful, and I'm going to break that down a little bit more, but These are means that God gives us to encounter him using material signs, material elements. And we'll address this further when we talk, especially about baptism and Eucharist. These material means that God uses for us to encounter him. The word sacraments, some of you may know, comes from the Greek word mysterion or mystery, which is used throughout the New Testament perhaps most especially uh, or uniquely in Ephesians 5 to talk about marriage, that marriage is a great mystery, Paul says. I'm describing Christ and the church. But sacrament itself is a later term that refers to very different activities or experiences. It's not just a single thing or a general category, at least in the church's history, in the same way that we use it now. The prayer book catechism describes a catechism or describes the sacrament rather as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace given by Christ as sure and certain means by which we receive that grace. And that definition comes basically directly from St. Augustine. That's in the prayer book catechism in the the back of your prayer book. An outward and physical sign, visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Grace. And to go back to week three as a reminder, grace is not just this sort of uh, quality that God meets out in little doses here and there of some sort of divine energy. Grace is actually the presence of God's Holy Spirit. It's God giving himself to us. So when we receive grace and the sacraments, we are encountering and being caught up in the life of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Augustine further describes sacraments as visible words, which I think is a really helpful definition 
of a sacrament. They're a use of visible, tactile materials, things we can feel and touch and taste. The sensible world to communicate invisible realities. And the materials that we encounter in the sacraments are not arbitrary. They're significant for a variety of reasons, perhaps especially because of the history of God with his people Israel. We see this in baptism, in the bread and the wine of the Eucharist, that God takes up these particular materials for a reason. They're already imbued with a kind of meaning and God takes them into the sacramental life of the church and imbues them with a kind of special meaning, promising that he'll meet his people in just these acts. So when we, when we encounter sacraments, the water of baptism, bread and wine, even the Bible, ashes on Ash Wednesday, holy oil for unction or anointing of the sick, the laying on of hands, all of these things the church has historically understood as sacraments or as sacramental realities. And the Holy Spirit uses these acts, these tactile, physical, visible actions to make God's presence known to us, to the glory of God the Father. So a few notes, general notes on sacraments before we get directly into talking about baptism and Eucharist. First, and perhaps most importantly, it's crucial to recognize that the chief sacrament is Jesus Christ himself, the incarnate Lord who comes to us in the flesh. And the foundational sacrament among all others is the church. We see this in theologians like Martin Luther in Karl Rahner, a 20th century Catholic theologian, that Jesus is the chief sacrament and the church mysteriously is the foundational sacrament. And all of the sacramental reality of our life is caught up in those two realities. Everything else we want to say about sacraments has to start there. The power of the sacraments and the efficacy of the sacrament is not inherent in the material itself then. There's nothing magical about water or about bread or about wine. The power of the sacraments comes directly from God himself, that God has promised to meet us in just these actions and experiences of the Christian life. Richard Hooker, an Anglican divine from whom there's a quote on the back of the handout, not the one I'm referencing now, he references uh, the bronze serpent in Numbers 21, where there's these, there are these snakes in Israel's camp and they're, they're slithering around biting people, which is a horrifying thought. And God instructs Moses to hold up a bronze serpent and that if people look on the bronze serpent, they will be healed from the snake bites. And Hooker, using this illustration from Numbers, says, this is like the sacrament, that it isn't the bronze serpent itself that saves the people from the poison of the snake. It's God working through, God's power coming through the looking on of this bronze serpent. And that's much the way that sacraments function in our own lives. Second thing to note, the proper location for sacraments is within the worship life of the gathered church. These are not magical rituals that can be sort of dispensed outside of the life of the church. Attending this is that numbered lists of sacraments, as we tend to think of them, especially uh, in the modern Western tradition, these are a pretty late invention. 
the early church doesn't have a set list of seven sacraments or a certain number of sacraments that they're using. That's a, that's a much later development, not until the late medieval era around the 12th century and still in the East today and in many areas of Christian life. Sacrament, sacramentality or sacraments are considered in a much broader sense to encompass all of Christian life. So the early church actually speaks of many things as sacraments, like the spiritual reading of scripture or Lectio Divina, which we did just this past week in our Wednesday night gathering. Uh, the people and events of the Bible are sometimes spoken of, interestingly, as sacraments. Christian singing of spiritual songs and hymns are described as sacramental in the early church. Marking ourselves with the sign of the cross, special prayer services for Christian saints, the imposition of ashes on Ash Wednesday, all of these things the church has historically actually understood to be sacramental or even sacraments themselves. So I want to broaden a little bit our our understanding of what we think of as sacraments beyond what we might associate with a typical numbered list. Further, sacraments are provisional, which is to say they are things that God has given us for our earthly life to commune with him, but in the heavenly Jerusalem, in the age to come, there will be no need for the sacraments. We see Jesus saying this to the Sadducees, about marriage, right? That in the, in the age to come, there, people will be neither married nor given in marriage. Similarly with the Eucharist, we'll no longer need to partake of the body and blood of Christ because God will be all and in all. But God has given these things as nourishment for our Christian life before the age to come. We often speak of word and sacraments, and this is good and right in many cases, but it can sometimes be misleading. Sometimes we separate word from sacrament in ways that can be unhelpful. In fact, all sacraments enact and represent the word who is Jesus Christ. And all sacraments contain words, right? All of the prayers and the things associated with sacraments, the ritual associated with sacraments, these contain words. So to separate Scripture and sacrament or word and sacraments can be unhelpful. Even the preached word is considered sacramental and can be a sacrament in one sense throughout the Christian tradition. So sacraments then are not just these isolated ritual acts that God gives us, but they're meant to be part of the entire liturgy. The Eastern Church has been really good on this, that the Eucharist begins not at the Eucharistic prayers when the priests go up to the altar and start doing all of their things, but at the introit, at the procession, when we enter the room, enter the nave for the beginning of the service, that's the beginning of the Eucharist. The whole service is the Eucharist, including the liturgy of the word. The reading of scripture and the preached word are a crucial part of the sacrament. Finally, in the sacraments, God's gift of faith and our response in faith are always both involved. There have been some currents within the history of the church that have suggested that there's something about the material itself disconnected from both God and the recipients that contains a kind of inherent power. And what we want to say is that it's God's power, God's promise that makes the sacrament efficacious and the sacrament is to be received in faith. 
that that's an important element of any sacrament, whether we're talking about baptism, Eucharist, uh, or any other sacramental reality. Christ, then, is the celebrant of every sacrament. Christ is the one who chiefly presides at every Eucharist. He's the one who celebrates every baptism. Christ is the chief celebrant of the liturgy. Okay, so that's a lot of information on sacraments, a lot of groundwork, but there are, I think, some important elements that need to be dispelled and set right at the outset when we're talking about sacraments, because I think a lot of us carry a certain freight around these concepts that can be sometimes unhelpful. So what are sacraments for then? This is where things get really important because they're about our specific lives as Christians. Sacraments are for our growth. They're for our nourishment as Christians. They're for health, for our life in God. They're what God gives us as a way of participating in his life here and now, as a means of growing and being nourished as Christians. And as such, they're more than just intellectual instruction. It's not just like a visual aid for something that needs to be taught, right? But that sacraments actually convey grace. They're the means by which God is present to us in the Holy Spirit. Sacraments are also a means for our assurance. Then when we partake of the sacrament, both baptism and Eucharist, we are assured because of this outward and visible act of what God has done inwardly and spiritually in our own lives. Right? The reception of the Eucharist weekly is meant to be a bulwark and a, and a confidence that God is present to us by the power of his spirit, that we are in fact in Christ and our constant return as Christians to our baptism functions the same way. Our baptism, this thing that really happened, that people witnessed happening in public, water was really poured over your head or you were really immersed in water and the triune formula was spoken aloud, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in front of a group of people. These are assurances of God's work and God's grace in our lives and as such should be a great comfort to us. And they mark off then the visible church. They're identity markers for us as a community. Right? We are the people who are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's who we are. We are the people that God gathers and feeds with the body and blood of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's who we are. That's what it means to be the church, to be gathered around scriptures and the sacraments. So, laying the, having laid the groundwork for sacraments more generally, I want to talk briefly then today about baptism and about Eucharist. First, baptism. Baptism is the sacrament that receives the most attention in the early church. This is really where most of the church's sacramental theology or writing about sacraments takes place. And most simply, baptism is a bath. It's a bath for the washing of sins, for purification, for initiation, for transformation. It's a bath in water. And it's heavily scripturally attested. All over the New Testament, we see, especially if you want to see a lot of baptisms, go to the book of Acts. You see as the early church is growing and expanding, in every case where the gospel is preached, when people turn and receive the gospel, 
and proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, they are in every case immediately baptized and brought into the life of the church. The significance of water and baptism we see throughout the scriptures, going all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis, the spirit hovers over the waters at creation. We see God judging the world and then rescuing it and renewing it and restoring it through the waters of the flood. We see God rescuing his people from slavery as he brings the Israelites through the Red Sea out of bondage in Egypt. We see Joshua leading God's people across the Jordan, the waters of, the, of a raging river and into the promised land. And then we even see in Ezekiel and in other prophets, the promise of water as washing God's people and giving them a new life and a new heart. And all of this imagery is taken up then in the New Testament when the New Testament talks about baptism. Find my place here. Jesus himself, we see, receives the baptism of John at the outset of his ministry, not Christian baptism, importantly, but the baptism of John. And Jesus then commands and institutes baptism as he commissions his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel. And then, as I mentioned throughout Acts, we see in every case where the church grows, where believers are coming to know the power, saving power of Jesus Christ, baptism always attends conversion. It always comes with faith without hesitation. So all of this rich scriptural imagery from the beginning of the scriptures all the way into the New Testament informs how baptism is understood in the New Testament. And we see all sorts of different ways that baptism is discussed. In 1 Peter, baptism is tied to the flood of Noah and it's understood as a washing from sin. 1 Peter 3.21. In John 3, Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus, we see baptism talked about as birth, new birth by water and by the Spirit. The church has always understood this to be a reference to baptism. Baptism is tied intimately to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This is why the early church immersed almost all baptisans, people to be baptized, that there's a symbolism of dying with Christ, going into the water, and being raised again to new life. Romans 6, 3, and 4, we see this really wonderfully put by St. Paul. We see throughout the book of Acts the renewal of the gift of the Holy Spirit and its conferral at baptism, that when believers are baptized, they're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And then they're incorporated, as we see in 1 Corinthians 12, into the body of Christ. That to be baptized is to be made a part of Christ's body. So with all this scriptural background, we get to the prayer book definition, which I think is really helpful and succinct. This is in the concerning the service notes on the facing page of the baptismal liturgy in the prayer book, around 300, page 300 or so. Baptism, the prayer book says, is full initiation by water and the Holy Spirit into into Christ's body, the church. Full initiation by water and the Spirit. The bond which God establishes in baptism, the prayer book says, is indissoluble. So, a couple things to note here. This pertains to adults, children, and infants who are baptized. To be baptized is to be made a full member of Christ's body, 
the church. And that means that all of the baptized have all of the benefits of Christ's body made available to them. And this is why, importantly, the church has, until the medieval West, as an aberration, always actually communed infants who were baptized. That to baptize an infant is to make that child a full part of God's church, incorporated fully into Christ's body. And there's no reason then to withhold the fullness of sacramental life, including the Eucharist, from that baby because that child has been brought into and incorporated into God's life. So if your child is baptized, they're welcome to receive. That's a practice we, we uh, do here at Church of the Incarnation. Baptism further is singular. So we see it's indissoluble, the prayer book says. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And baptism, therefore, should not be repeated or, or uh, done a second time or third time. It can be renewed, as we see in our baptismal covenant, but never repeated. Because what God accomplishes in baptism through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit is once for all. It's indissoluble. And so confirmation, as we understand it, then does not complete baptism. It's not a sort of necessary final piece to your baptism. What confirmation is actually is a renewal and a rededication of the vows made at your baptism. Baptism further is then a necessary part of the Christian life as the New Testament and as the church has understood it. It's not an optional sort of addition to what it means to be a Christian Richard Hooker puts this well. He writes essentially that just as we cannot be natural men but by birth, so neither does the church consider us Christian men or Christian people but by new birth. For we are not born into new life without baptism. There's something essential to baptism for what it means to live the Christian life. Something really happens in baptism. All right. Onto Eucharist. We'll come back to what baptism has to say about the Christian life or for the Christian life. So if baptism is a bath for the washing of sins, the Eucharist is a meal. The Eucharist is a meal. Baptism is new birth into Christian life. And as newborn children, we need the nourishment that God provides in the Eucharist. I love this quote from Richard Hooker on the outline. Uh, The grace, this is the second quote on the back page, the grace which we have by the Holy Eucharist does not begin but continue life. No man therefore receives this sacrament before baptism because no dead thing is capable of nourishment. That which grows must of necessity first must live. Life, this is skipping down, life being therefore proposed to all men as their end, they which by baptism have laid the foundation and attained the first beginning of a new life, here have their nourishment and food prescribed for continuance of life in them. Such as will and live the life of God must eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. It's a great short statement of what the Eucharist is for and how it's related to baptism. Eucharist itself, the word means thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we talk about Eucharist as a sacrifice, the sacrifice we're talking about is not a re-sacrificing of Jesus on an altar. Our liturgy makes this clear. It's a sacrifice of our own praise and thanksgiving, an offering of ourselves and our entire lives 
to God. We have community further through this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving that we offer to God. The Eucharist brings us together and binds us together as one body of Christ. So looking quickly then at the structure of our Eucharistic prayers as a way of understanding what the Eucharist is. The structure of our prayers in the prayer book is an ancient structure. This is the way that the church has really always prayed the Eucharist with a few obscurities at different times. First, when we enter into the Eucharistic prayers, we we start with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to God the Father for who he is and for his work. It is meet right in our bounden duty, we say, that we should at all times and in all places give thanks unto thee, O Lord, Holy Father, for that thou didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ. We begin with this posture of thanksgiving, appropriate to the name of the Eucharist. Secondly, our Eucharistic prayers are about remembrance of Christ. We're remembering Christ's work in the Eucharist. Christ who suffered death upon the cross for our redemption, for the sins of the whole world. Who did institute and in his holy gospel command us to continue a perpetual memory of that his precious death and sacrifice. We're calling to mind, being reminded. This is in the prayers called uh, the anamnesis, right? the remembrance which includes the words of institution, the words that Jesus himself speaks at the Last Supper. This is my body given for thee. This is my blood. This is the cup of the new covenant. All of this is reminding us and representing to us the work that Christ has already accomplished and done once for all. And we need to be reminded of this regularly because we so easily forget. Thirdly, We have the invocation of the Holy Spirit in our prayers. This is called the epiclesis, you perhaps have heard of in in Greek. Uh, the, The invocation of the Spirit. Vouchsafe, we pray, to bless and sanctify with thy word and Holy Spirit these thy gifts, that we may be filled with thy grace, right? the grace of the Holy Spirit and heavenly benediction. Right, that we're, we're, invoking the Holy Spirit to come and to make these gifts the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This happens through the chief celebrant, Jesus Christ, and by the power of his spirit, that this bread and this wine become what God has promised to make them, the body and blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Then finally, we have the communion of the faithful in the prayers, that we were made one body with him, that he may dwell in us, and we in him. We see this also in the post-communion prayer. Right? We thank God in the post-communion prayer for incorporating us into the mystical body of his son, Jesus Christ. That in the Eucharist, God makes the church, makes a community, draws us together. The community of the baptized who come to the Lord's table are brought into communion both with one another and with God. So, benefits of the Eucharist, principally, right, what, we, what we receive in the Eucharist is the real presence of Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father. We encounter Jesus in a real way and participate in his life. We literally have communion. This is why we call this Holy Communion, right? We have communion with Jesus as we partake in the bread and the wine of the sacrament. 
And this is a foretaste each week when we come to church to receive the Eucharist. It's a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. This final eschatological meal in the age to come where God will bring all of the nations, all of the faithful around his table and feed them with his presence. The spiritual food then for the nourishment of our lives with God. A few final notes on the Eucharist to reiterate some things mentioned before. Reception of the Eucharist begins immediately following baptism. In the history of the church, that's always been the case, again, with the exception of the sort of 12th century kind of Latin West and following, that to be baptized is to be then admitted to the Lord's table. And we receive and understand the Eucharist at whatever age or whatever ability that we have. And this includes children who understand the Eucharist in their own particular way, who have faith in their own particular way. It includes the mentally disabled who are welcome to God's table, even though they might not understand in a certain sense of understanding, I'm using lots of quotes here, what the Eucharist means. The Eucharist is understood by faith by those who receive it. And further, the grace of the sacraments will always be incomprehensible to us, right? Even those of us uh, who have studied and thought about the sacraments and, and written dissertations on the Eucharist, there's still incomprehensibility and mystery. And that's beautiful. That's wonderful. God invites us into that and meets us in that mystery. Christ is really present in the Eucharist, but wise theologians have counseled us to sort of uh, not debate too much over how that presence is, how Christ is present, just how, the, me- the mechanism or the, the mechanics by which Christ is present. Richard Hooker writes that uh, meditation with silence is preferable to debates over how. But that being said, Christ is really present, we really do encounter him uh, in the body and blood of the Eucharist. Um, As a meal, the Eucharist's ultimate intention is to be consumed, to nourish us, that we might dwell in Christ and he in us. And finally, the Eucharist is an act of praise. It's a joyful occasion where God invites us to his table to feed us with his own body and blood, the blood and body of Jesus Christ in the bread and wine. And so it's to be undertaken with joy. Right? When we come to worship on Sunday, of course, solemnity is appropriate, is appropriate and contrition is valuable. And we confess our sins and ask for God to purify us, to make us worthy to receive his body and blood. But the actual reception of the Eucharist and the celebration and worship that takes place is an act of joy and thanksgiving for what God has given us in Christ Jesus by the power of his spirit. So we don't have much time to say, to talk about other things considered sacraments or sacramentals in the life of the church. Um, But just to say, we talk about the sacramental rite of, of confirmation. We mentioned this already. Confirmation is really a renewal and rededication of our baptism. It's not a completion of baptism or a, a necessary element for receiving communion. Marriage, the church has often talked about as a sacrament, this sign of a male-female union that 
that signals the reality of Christ's love for the church, Paul writes in Ephesians 5. We have confession, the tangible material reception of forgive, God's forgiveness through the presence and voice of another human being. And then unction or anointing with oil at any time, but especially uh, for those who are sick. That the oil communicates in some mysterious way the presence of God's Holy Spirit with those who are sick. So finally, by way of conclusion, the sacraments give us the shape of our life together as Christians. Right? Baptism, the dying and being raised again with Christ, and Eucharist, the being fed with Christ's body and blood in the bread and wine. These show us the shape of death and new life that make up Christian growth and holiness. That to grow as a Christian is to consistently be returning to our baptism and to the table to receive the Lord's body and blood. It's to be returning to the grace that God has given us and has promised that he will make perfect in us as we grow into the image of his son, our savior, Jesus Christ. And we do that together as a community, right? Not in sort of private uh, dispensing of magical sacramental acts, but as we join together as Christ's body, as we are baptized into his body and then come together each week to worship and to receive the Eucharist. So our life together as a church is essential and the sacraments are meant for our growth. They're meant for our nourishment. They're meant to make us more and more each day into the image of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. So um, I'm gonna end us there. We have a little bit of time for questions. I know I went a little long. I'm sorry, we started late. Uh, Father Cody, I think Michael, there's Michael, great. Michael is gonna run our Q&A today. Uh, are there questions? We probably have time for two or three this morning. Questions on sacraments. Thank you. Um, could you reflect for a minute on the sacramental nature of confession? Yes. Um, thanks for the question, Michael. Confession as a sacrament, there are a couple different ways of understanding the way that confession sort of functions or works. But the most basic, I think, benefit or sacramental element of confession is to experience physically, tangibly, the word of God's forgiveness spoken audibly to you by another person. Right? And in particular, uh, this has been the priest who stands sort of in the place of God and doesn't dole out forgiveness in a sort of special way necessarily, but pronounces the forgiveness that God has already given to the penitent sinner in a way that's supposed to be a special comfort to the one confessing. Um, again, there are different ways of, of understanding exactly what's going on there. Um, and even in sort of Anglican theological tradition, some different ways of describing that. But the most basic element of the sacramental element really of confession is that experiencing and hearing the word of God's forgiveness uh, that God's already offered and completed in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious what the church's teaching is on. You said baptism is once for all, and you hear Romans 8 referenced, and you were pointing to nothing can take us from God. Um, and a second piece to that is that we my understanding is we receive the Holy Spirit as a gift at baptism. So my question is, 
is there anything an individual can do? Like if an individual renounces their baptism or says, I'm turning away from this, I don't believe this. Is there, what's the church's teaching on can one who has been baptized and received the gift of the Holy Spirit, um, is there any instance of something that can happen that could take them away from God? Yeah, great question. This is a very controverted question, even within Anglicanism, actually, but in the history of the church. And so it needs to be answered with care. What I would say is that it does seem that the New Testament understands a possibility of being able to fall away um, or to reject, perhaps even rejecting one's baptism. Uh, And I think part of, maybe the best way of answering this question is to say that um, when we think about sacraments, sometimes we, we think about sort of what has to be in place for them to work perfectly, or we think about what makes a sacrament valid is often a question. Um, but to think about sacraments properly, and even baptism properly, um, is to think about baptism as the beginning of the Christian life, as something that isn't ever meant to sort of stand alone as a magical act that guarantees someone's salvation but as something that is part of an entire Christian life that's bound up with the life of the church. So on the one hand, I wouldn't want to say with any confidence that uh, we can sort of undo what God has done in baptism at all. And I think um, I've mentioned before that I think God's grace and the power of baptism indeed sort of goes beyond maybe what we can really understand from a human perspective. On the other hand, I think the tendency of thinking about baptism as sort of guaranteeing us salvation once for all can sometimes sort of pervert the way that we think about baptism as part of Christian formation, part of Christian life, part of what it means to live a full life in God. Um, So I I hope I'm getting at the question a little bit. On the one hand, I don't want to say definitively. On the other hand, I think the best way to think about baptism is um, as a part of a comprehensive Christian life. Cynthia down here has a question. This is probably the last one we have time for. Sorry, y'all. I agree that these things are very complicated, and we go to one side, and I'll go to the other side. I have a daughter who just turned 23 last Monday, and she's a surviving triplet. 31. 31. She's a surviving triplet. Mm. Uh, Catherine and Benjamin lived five days, and... We were of a tradition that was not coming in and giving the sacrament. I know that they're in heaven, but this becomes a very difficult when you read some of these. If they weren't, then they're yeah, yeah, they're gone. And I think those are those are also important things that lead a lot of people away from the church. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Say okay, my two of them went to hell. Yes, that's, that's an important true. that's an important comment and and addition to this discussion, Cynthia, which is to say, um, and actually Richard Hooker here, uh, classic Anglican divine, is really good on this. He, he makes an important point to say that um, baptism is not always possible for those who intend to be baptized. Um, so there, you think of the martyrs, for example, right, who uh, have a sort of baptism by desire, someone who converts and then is martyred for their faith before they can be baptized. Richard Hooker takes this as an extreme example and says, in this case, could we really say that someone who is martyred for their faith is not truly believed or a true believer or sort of truly saved because they were, un, they were unbaptized. 
And then Richard Hooker sort of extrapolates from this extreme case to say, there seem to be all sorts of other cases where baptism was either not possible or not available, or for some other reason, someone was not baptized. Or in the case of infants, um, is there sort of uh, the necessity of baptism for salvation of an infant is just not, doesn't seem to be biblical. Right? And it, it, there are other cases where baptism is unrequired for salvation. Um, and so I think we can say baptism is normative and in, indeed it's necessary and a necessary component of the Christian life to be grafted into Christ's body. And yet there are cases where the unbaptized are still welcomed into God's family um, and perhaps more cases than we, than we even know or can imagine. Um, but I think that's an important piece of pastoral comfort. Um, and just one more note on the previous question. I, I want to say I think that the whole, um, the grace of baptism, we can never really foreclose on too early, which is to say someone who's baptized and it looks like they've fallen away and rejected God. There's so many cases of those people coming back to the faith later on in their life. And I think it's appropriate to see that as the grace of baptism sort of working itself out through the course of one's entire life. Um, so a lot more to say there. Thank you all for your attentiveness. Uh, if you have further questions, I'm happy to, to chat about those afterward. But um, grace and peace to you all and uh, enjoy the rest of your morning.